Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. This interview with Dr. Michael Lewis has the power to literally change and save lives. Maybe you have never had a concussion, but chances are you know someone who has. By using Dr. Lewis's simple yet profound omega-3 fatty acid protocol, countless people have recovered from some of the most debilitating traumatic brain injuries. In this episode, Dr. Lewis clearly defines what can be somewhat confusing terminology around head injuries, concussions, traumatic brain injuries, shearing, and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. We discuss signs and symptoms of concussions, many of which unfortunately people do not often attribute to head injuries. We also look at diagnostic tools and their limitations, the role of contact sports in brain injuries, pre and postnatal nutrition concerns, and of course, the roles of essential fatty acids and CBD oil in fortifying our brains and recovering from traumas. I urge you not to miss a moment of this episode as every topic we discuss could dramatically impact the lives of those around you. Dr. Lewis is the author of the revolutionary book, When Brains Collide. In my opinion, a must read for anyone who cares about brain health. He is the president of the Brain Health Education and Research Institute, which he founded in late 2011 upon retiring as a colonel after a distinguished 31-year career in the U.S. Army. His pioneering work in the military and since has helped thousands of people around the world. He's regularly featured in the media, including CNN's Sanjay Gupta MD show and numerous radio shows and podcasts. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and Tulane University School of Medicine. Dr. Lewis is board certified and a fellow of the American College of Preventative Medicine and the American College of Nutrition. He completed postgraduate training at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, Johns Hopkins University, and Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. He is currently in private practice in Potomac, Maryland, and is a consultant to the U.S. Army and Navy, in addition to several organizations, institutes, and nutrition companies around the world. He is a founding member of the Pop Warner Youth Football Medical Advisory Board. In this episode, we deeply discuss brain health and its many layers and intricacies, but you do not have to be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon in this case to learn what Dr. Lewis has to offer about protecting your brain. Dr. Michael Lewis, it is an honor to have you on the show today. I want to begin our discussion on traumatic brain injury and your research by first beginning with one of your incredible stories of recovery from brain injury. I don't want to lose a single listen, listener to this episode because the information that you have to offer is so important. So I thought we'd start with one of those very inspirational stories. Yeah, well, you know, the one that kind of got me on the map, if you will, is uh, the story of Bobby, as I call it. Um, Bobby was a typical 18 year old high school teenager doing stupid things that high school uh, seniors would do when their parents are out of town, take the family car for a ride and uh, a joy ride around the, the narrow windy wooded streets of uh, Northern Virginia. Um, and he failed to make uh, navigate a, a turn in the end 
and wrap the tree or uh, wrap the car around the tree. And it took him an hour and a half to for the emergency services to get him out of the vehicle. I don't even know how he survived. Uh, Aravac to the nearest hospital, which wasn't actually far away. And the parents were you know, out of town. And when they got there, they were told, pull the plug. There's no chance that this kid's going to survive at all. Um, and, and I got a call a couple of days later from a, a family friend saying, hey, what do you think about, you know, you've been talking about using high-dose omega-3s for concussions and traumatic brain injury. What do you think about using them with this kid? Um, I said, I don't know. It's never been tried before. And so talk to the father, talk to the neurosurgeon, the neurosurgeon basically said, well, we got nothing to lose because, you know, the kid's not going to survive anyway. And so uh, the real short of the story is uh, Bobby went to his high school graduation three months later and uh, was home uh, a month or two after that. And so, you know, this is from a kid that was not supposed to survive. Um, they moved out to Southern California for better weather, kind of get away from the scene of the accident and memories of it. Plus his sister was going to school out there. And, uh, about five years after that, um, uh, I introduced Bobby. I, by then had been introduced to, uh, CBD, hemp derived CBD. Uh, and so convinced Bobby to give it a try and, and two weeks, within two weeks, I got a phone call. Um, Bobby says he's no longer depressed, stopped his antidepressants, stopped his anxiety medications, um, walked. And the big reason why he called was they, he walked across the room at physical therapy for the first time without any assistance, no cane, no walker or anything. Not because his you know muscles became so great and wonderful in two weeks, but because his anxiety was so reduced that he didn't tell himself he couldn't try. Um, and then a month or two later, I got a, an email from him. He had moved out of his parents' house, gotten an apartment with some friends, a full-time job, finishing up college, and was doing stand-up comedy at open mic nights in Los Angeles uh, for the fun of it. So uh, Bobby's been doing pretty well, wow. you know, considering that he never should have survived, honestly. So the omega-3 therapy seemed to help him in the initial recovery and then the CBD oil helped him overcome his anxiety? Absolutely. Okay. I, I know we're going to get into both of those topics in detail in a bit. I wanted to first maybe define concussion and traumatic brain injury, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, concussion is a traumatic brain injury. We just, you know, it's just a term that we use that we think you know, it sort of softens that, you know, no, no mother wants to be told their kid has a brain injury. Um, you know, so it's softer language, if you will. Concussion doesn't sound as um, dramatic as uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury. Uh, but it is. It is absolutely a traumatic brain injury. And so, you know, you think about it, if you, you know, say slip on the ice and your feet go flying, you hit your head on the concrete, um, your, your skull comes to a sudden stop, but your brain doesn't. It keeps moving until it's, you know, it comes to a sudden stop, which is hitting the inside of your skull. Um, and it can reverberate back and forth. So you can get a coup, what they call a coup contra coup type of injury where, you know, both sides of the brain get hit, you know, whether it's from the side or front and back or could even be rotational. Um, but it's basically at, 
the most basic level, it's a bruising or contusion of the brain itself. And in some cases, if it's, if it's mild, it wouldn't even be detectable, even like on a CAT scan or something like that. But it is, does happen at the, um, you know, at the microscopic level and it can alter the brain function. So really the, 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 you know, a concussion or brain injury is, is really defined by a blow to the head that uh, alters brain function. Um, now, how you interpret that, you know, is certainly something that always gets uh, you know, bantered about. Now, there's a, a couple different phases of concussion. Can you talk about the primary and secondary phases and well, what happens? Well, when you slip on the ice and you hit your head, that's the primary injury, right? That initial blow, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a whiplash injury or whether it's a, a, you know, a punch to the head or, you know, slipping and falling and hitting your head, that's the initial or primary injury. Um, You know, and you you, you get your bell rung or you get dizzy or, you know, in some cases, not actually, in very few cases, do you actually get knocked out, knocked unconscious. Um, you may have memory issues before, not remember things what happened before, or maybe not afterwards. Um, but that most people think, okay, you just shake that off, and and that's the that's the traumatic brain injury, or that's the concussion. Uh, but really, that's just the beginning. It, what that does is it sets off these biochemical cascades and inflammation. Because anytime you have an injury, you have inflammation to try to repair the damage. And then, you know, theoretically, that inflammation is supposed to get resolved. And so those biochemical cascades are what we call the secondary phase or secondary injury. And that's where we can intervene. That's where we can try to make a difference. Um, We need inflammation. Inflammation is life. Um, But the problem that we have is while we, you know, typically as a society, we have, you know, we'll have a head injury, we'll have an inflammation. The problem is we're not resolving the inflammation like we should. And that's really driven by diet, by nutrition. What are some of the other symptoms of concussion? You mentioned a few. Well, um, you know, the biggest thing, somebody that's had a concussion, uh, typically they'll be struggling with what we'll call brain fog. Um, think of it as you have a really bad head cold without the runny nose, right? You, know, you think the last time you had a bad head cold, felt like your head was stuffed full of cotton. Um, you had trouble thinking, uh, processing. Uh, you just want to crawl back in bed. You just feel like you got run over by a truck. Um, you know, that's, that's what a concussion is like. So you have problems cognitively, you know, thinking or brain fog, you can have problems with dizziness um, or vertigo. You can have ocular motor issues, problems with eye tracking or sensitivity to light. Um, one, of the, one of the issues that I see quite frequently is uh, people that um, they read, you know, they can't really read because they're, they're not tracking the words across a page and then have to go back and forth and back and forth across the page. Um, and they have eye tracking issues and it may be the point of one of the other things is headaches. And so, um, that ocular motor, the eye tracking could also, you know, trying to read can lead to headaches or just headaches, uh, happen, you know, as one of the major symptoms. Um, but then there's other subtle ones, um, sleep issues that can disrupt 
uh, sleep patterns, uh, make sleep all the time or not be able to get to sleep. Uh, everybody's, you know, can be different in that. And then some subtle things that may or may not be so attributed. I mean, sometimes like I, I just had a, a friend who said, you know, they're a, a friend of a friend's daughter, um, son had had a concussion or for two years has been having really big problems with anxiety and uh just sort of struggling in college and my friend asked well what you know what happened two years ago did they you know have a concussion she's oh my god that's exactly what happened and they didn't put two and two together they didn't realize that a concussion could lead to the issues of anxiety and struggles in school um you know take a good uh, a well-natured good kid uh, for example who um you know uh, who now all of a sudden becomes irritable and um uh, struggling in school you know a change in personality that's you know some of the subtle things that you may or may not uh, know about and may not attribute to a concussion especially if it happened months or even years ago yeah, I have a, <clears throat> a few few loved ones who are suffering from post-concussive symptoms and angerness. Anger is, is yeah, a absolutely. big symptom that they're struggling with. Well, let's, uh, I'm curious about how you got into this research of concussion and how that became your focus. So if you don't mind, let's go back a few years. I know you have a very extensive medical background, and I would like to just touch on that for a bit. Yeah, I, um, so I, out of high school, I went to West Point, uh, U.S. Military Academy, and um, and then went out and played Army for a couple of years, as I say, before I went to medical school. I had every intention of being a surgeon. My father was a small town surgeon, so I, you know, I was spent my adult life uh, career in the Army, 31 and a half years altogether. And uh, the Army, in their infinite wisdom, before you do a specialty, they would send you out and do, at the time, would send you out and do general practice for a couple of years. And uh, I discovered nights and weekends um, and end up going and getting um, trained and board certified in preventive medicine and public health. Um, got involved in infectious disease work, um, was assigned over in Asia and Bangkok for a number of years as a disease hunter. So. You know, I know we're in times of the coronavirus and uh, all that craziness that's going on now. I was that ground zero when SARS happened and bird flu. And that was what I did was in infectious disease outbreaks. And, and the Army said, you got all this great training. Come back and teach at the medical school in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, and now there's a war going on. And, you know, you're around wounded warriors and you start to think, what can I do to help? Uh, with the with the current situation, and uh, kind of put two and two together, and came up with an odd number, and, and went to the head of research and asked, "Is anybody looking at uh, at the use of omega three fatty acids like from fish oil to help our soldiers recover from traumatic brain injury?" And he thought about it for a second. He's no, why don't you? <laughs> and uh, like, well, I don't know anything about it. You know, I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a neurosurgeon. I'm not a biochemist. Um, you know, he goes, but you're the only one asking the question. In fact, um, I've got some extra money. Why don't you, you know, why don't you start a research program and and I'll start, the, you know, help help with the funding. So that literally was a career change, and, and that was about. 13 years ago and been kind of on that path ever since. 
where did your interest in omega threes come from? Uh, a big, a big reason why is I just kept hearing these different things and particular one particular thing, January, 2006, uh, there was a coal mine accident in West Virginia, the Sago mine accident. And I forget exactly. It was a 22 or 23 miners were trapped underground for 40, 41 hours. And when they finally got down to rescue them, there was only one guy that was left alive barely. I mean, he was right on the edge and, um, you know, carbon monoxide and poisoning and methane gas poisoning and, and your body starts to shut down. You, you know, you have a heart attack, your liver function, your kidney functions, all that just shuts down. That's how you die from carbon monoxide poisoning. And he was the only one still left. And, you know, they did dialysis and hyperbaric oxygen and all the things you do for carbon monoxide, but they were still left with a, this 23 or 25 year old, um, you know, a young man who didn't have basically any brain function. Um, he was basically brain dead. So out of desperation, they just started flooding him with omega-3s, fish oil. And Real short of the story is he walked out of the hospital a couple, couple months later and has gone on to live a fairly healthy, normal life. Um, and I looked at it and thought, well, if it worked for carbon monoxide poisoning, I wonder if it might work for traumatic brain injury. The brain's made of fat. Omega-3 types of fats are, you know, 30% of the brain. Um, but the problem was nobody knew and nobody had ever looked at it. Nobody had ever, uh, I guess nobody ever asked the question. Right. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Julian Bales was involved in that. Was he the attendant? He was the, he was the head of neurosurgery at West Virginia University at the time and, and mm -hmm. was the primary uh, uh, healthcare provider on that case. Yeah. And according, you know, I read this in your book, When Brains Collide, which, by the way, is an incredible book. And he perhaps learned that from Dr. Barry Sears. Yeah, Barry Sears has been doing, you know, talking about inflammation, you know, and the effect of omega-3s on inflammation for years. Um, you know, Barry Sears, a, a PhD up in Massachusetts, uh, you know, is best known for the zone diet, which is basically an anti-inflammatory type of diet. And, uh, and so that's really where his focus has been. So um, <laughs> the story goes that uh, Julian Bale's wife, um, said to him one night, you know, why don't you call uh, Barry Sears? He's always talking about inflammation. I wonder if it might help uh, with, with uh, this case, um, you know, the, for the carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and basically, they had nothing to lose. So they just tried it. It's incredible. And your book is filled with so many stories about omega-3 fatty acids helping people recover from traumatic brain injury. You went on to found the Brain Health Education Research Institute. Is that correct? That is correct. And what can you tell us a bit about what that is? Well, it's uh, when I was retiring from the military, um, you know, I wanted a, a way to be able to get this information out to people. Um, so I started this nonprofit, uh, Brain Health Education Research Institute. Um, you know, to try to influence research, do do research if I can, but it's really been much, you know, it's, it's stayed small. Running a, a, a nonprofit tends to be, uh, they're called nonprofits for a reason. Um, uh, 
but I, you know, so I tried to influence research um, and do research whenever I can, but really, you know, kind of just educate, you know, um, through podcasts and radio shows. I do a lot of, a lot of work. Um, I speak at a lot of medical conferences and then I'm constantly updating uh, the website with latest news. I'm looking, you know, pretty much on a daily basis. What's, what's new in traumatic brain injury and concussion and omega threes and nutrition uh, and how they all interrelate uh, and put that information out for public consumption. Now at the time of your book publication, which I believe was about five years ago, if I'm not mistaken. About all of three, two or three, a little over two or okay. yeah, two and a half. You indicated that at that time you and Dr. Bales were really the only two people doing research in this area. Is that still the case? Uh, fortunately, no. I mean, uh, you know, there's been a, a number of people that have kind of picked this up. Um, as an example, um, uh, researcher Jonathan Oliver was at Texas Christian University at the time, and uh, he uh, he basically kind of took me to task. He he took the protocols that I had been saying, you know, should work to help uh, increase resilience of the brain. Uh, I'll say prevent concussions, but it's really about increasing the resilience of the brain to withstand injury. And uh, the 2014 uh, football season, he they, he he was the lead researcher. They put uh, the entire football team on varying doses of omega threes, including placebo, and uh, had a couple effects. One is there's um, a biomarker, a, a serum biomarker that you can follow. It's called neurofilament light. And it goes up over the course of a season. So the more times you hit your head, the more that and that neurofilament light levels go up in the blood over time. And they were able to show that it blunted that increase over the season in the players that were taking uh, omega threes. And what wasn't ever really reported in the um, in the scientific literature is because it was small numbers, so they didn't want to make a big deal out of it, but they had half the number of concussions that they would normally historically have over the season. Uh, in fact, less than half. They would Their average was like 14 concussions in a season, and I think they had five concussions that year. Um, and, you know, small numbers, so they couldn't really make much of it. Um, but uh, unfortunately, not a whole lot more. I, I understand that there's two clinical trials being done right now. Um, I'm not uh, I'm not intimately familiar with them at all. So I think a few people have picked up and um, tried to. The hardest part is getting funding. Uh, mm. The fish oil industry isn't going to fund it because, you know, if company X you know, spends the money to do the research, you can go out and buy whatever at uh, CVS or Walgreens or whatever your local drugstore is, you know, it's, it's, you can buy fish oil anywhere. So why, you know, what company's going to put money into it when they're not going to get the benefits out of it? Mm -hmm. And the government just doesn't seem to be so interested in it for whatever reason. Um, I think nutrition sometimes gets, uh, uh, gets relegated to, oh, it's not really important. It's just nutrition. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. Let's actually look at the essential fatty acids and what they are, the good ones, the bad ones. Can you walk us through what people need to know about these omegas? 
Well, so omegas are, you know, a type of fat. Um, they call them essential fatty acids. They're, I'll just use the initials. Um, you know, the smaller chain, you know, 18 carbons in length is called ALA. Um, that's the one that's considered essential um, because our bodies can't make that. Um, ALA gets elongated and desaturated to EPA, which is 20 carbons in length, and then 22 carbons in length is DHA, so docosahexaenoic acid. That's what's found in the brain. About 30% of the weight of our brain is DHA. Um, EPA is kind of considered the heart-healthy one, um, a great antioxidant. On the other side of things, there's omega-6s. And so it has to do with where the double bonds are in the, in the chemical and, and, um, and how many there are. And um, so there's omega-6s. Omega-6 is, uh, is also essential. Um, so LA is the, the short chain one, and then it gets elongated into arachidonic acid. That's the one that gets talked about the most. Um, arachidonic acid is a significant part of the fat of the brain as well. And so they share the same enzymes, they share the same processes to get made and to get broken down. Um, so it's a competition and, and that nature meant for omega-6s and omega-3s to be in balance because omega-6s, the downstream effects of omega-6s are mostly inflammation. And I said, inflammation is life. You need inflammation to help the process of recovery, but we need to resolve the inflammation. That's what omega-3s do. So pro-inflammatory omega-6s, you call them anti-inflammatory or pro-resolving um, omega-3s. And while we were meant to be in balance and, you know, 100, 200 years ago, uh, principally the, for the history of mankind, our diets reflected that balance. Uh, but in the last 50 to 80 years, that balance has become more and more skewed towards omega-6s. In, in fact, I've done some research and studies, and we found basically 25 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. 25 to 1 out of balance. That's just fuel on the fire. The, so the omega-6s and that type of thing, it's just throwing fuel on the fire in that I think that we're seeing more concussions and worse outcomes now, not just because we're looking for them and all the awareness, but I really believe that some of that is because uh, this imbalance between omega-6s and omega-3s. Is the 25 to 1 ratio, omega-6 to omega-3, is that kind of what is standard right now for the average typical diet? Well, it's, I mean, if you take, you know, large numbers and were to uh, evaluate it, anybody that's not taking fish oil supplementation is going to be probably anywhere at the, if they're eating really, really healthy, maybe 15 to 1, but generally 20 to 30 uh, to one as for if you're not taking supplementation and we're, you know get an ideal of one to one uh well that would be an ideal i mean they say three to one or even five to one is is pretty good um and i would agree with that um one to one is probably uh almost impossible to to really obtain um but it's not that we have a lack of omega-3s or an omega-3 problem 
we really have an omega-6 problem. Omega-6s are in everything. You think, oh, I don't need omega-6s. Yes, you do. It's in everything. Because omega-6s are a stable molecule. They're shelf-stable. So processed foods, you know, how do you think we, you know, you know, make, you know, processed foods and have it shelf-stable for a couple of years and can ship it around the world? Uh, it's in the animal feed, um, you know, for all, you know, all animals, including farmed salmon, for example. I think, you know, well, salmon's a good, you know, it's fish. It's got to be a good good food. Well, it depends on what the salmon's being fed. Wild-caught salmon um, is great because they're not being fed. So, you know, the biggest source of omega-6s is, is actually soybean oil. And that's in all the animal feed. Um, and it's what's used to process foods to make it shelf stable to be able to ship around the world. So it's ubiquitous. It's in everything. How did you come up with the therapeutic protocol for omega threes? I pulled it out of thin air, <laughs> and then just you know sometimes these things happen. Um, it actually is based in science. I didn't even know it at the time. I. I literally, I pulled it out of thin air when my younger brother called me and said, I just got knocked unconscious doing something stupid. You know, what should I do? And I said, take fish oil. And he goes, I've already taken it because you told me to. I'm like, should, you know, and he said, should I take more? And I said, yeah. And I like made it up at the moment and said, take this much, take 3000 milligrams, um, you know, now. 3,000 more before you go to bed, and then three times a day tomorrow. Well, that 3,000 turns out to be what the FDA uh, calls generally recognized as safe. So for food substances and, and uh, ingredients, there's this grass level, G-R-A-S, generally recognized as safe. And the US FDA says that 3,000 milligrams of the combined amount of EPA and DHA is grass level. In, uh, in Europe, it's 5,000, but you know, in the US, it's 3,000. So I said, all right, well, let's stick with that 3,000. But I know people are deficient. So for a short period of time, I want to kind of do a loading dose. So let's triple that for a little while, for a couple of days to even, you know, even a month. Um, and I have some patients 10 years down the road are still taking higher amounts of fish oil because they like how it makes them feel. It clears up their mind. They can think more clearly. They have more energy. And then they notice when they stop taking the higher amounts that they don't think as clear and don't have the energy. So um, I've got patients uh, that 10 years later are still taking the higher amounts. But it's not what I recommend. It's not what the FDA recommends. Um, but so I did literally kind of pull it out of the air. Uh, but it's all based in science. You mentioned Julian Bales earlier. He did some animal studies, um, and the dose that seemed to work the best in his animal studies was 40 milligrams per kilogram. Take your average size person, and believe it or not, that works out to be 3,000 milligrams. So it just all seems to come together. Um, when the universe talks to you, sometimes you gotta listen. And to clarify, 3,000 milligrams, that's combined of the DHA and the EPA. Is that correct? The, correct. So some people ask, is EPA more important? Is DHA more important? DHA is what's found in the brain. Isn't DHA more important for the brain uh, and a traumatic brain injury? And 
my answer is we don't know. I mean, we don't even have the, the studies to show that this is the, an effective approach, although my experience over the last 13 or so years has basically shown that it's a very effective approach, not, not 100%, but you know what medication ever works 100%. We're talking about nutrition without really any um, side effects. Um, so it just, just seems to work. <laughs> are there any contraindications or side effects for the omega-3s? Uh, you, if you take too much, the theoretical risk of bleeding, but too much is usually way more than what you would ever uh, think about taking. Um, there are a number of surgical programs and studies that have been done in Europe and the U.S. that show even requiring patients to take omega-3s prior to surgery actually improves outcome and doesn't increase increase the risk of bleeding. So the biggest pushback I ever get is, oh, it'll increase the risk of bleeding or it can cause bleeding. It, it's never been documented to cause bleeding. Um, I'll caution patients that you might bruise a little bit easier, like if you were to take a baby aspirin a day, but there's no documentation in the scientific literature that it's ever caused bleeding. In fact, one of the leading proponents and surgeons in Oregon requires his patients to be on omega-3s before surgery and says, this is an old wives tale that we just got to put to rest. It does not cause bleeding. So you advocate for a daily maintenance dosage of 3000 milligrams. Is that correct? I, I would say two to 3000 milligrams for your typical person. Absolutely. And in your experience, that serves as a preventative to some of these brain injuries that may come, and it also helps bring about clarity of cognition as well as some, some other benefits. I, I, that's what I've seen, that's what I've experienced. Um, there's a couple of animal studies out there that use basically that dose, um, and very effectively, I mean, you know, at, as a scientific, um, the basis of a scientific study. But we don't have it, uh, you know, to do a prevention trial like that would take thousands of people and, and you know, generally years or, uh, to do and millions of dollars and nobody's going to fund that kind of research. You do write about at least one soldier who was taking, had a diet that was high in omega-3s and despite being near many uh, blows that resulted in concussions and a lot of his uh, his teammates. He did not suffer any symptoms of concussions. Yeah, he was a, a bomb disposal guy, an EOD guy, um, and it was really interesting because we were um, we would be conversing when he was in Afghanistan. Uh, we'd be on on it was Google Chat or whatever um, whatever the Google platform is. And, you know, basically texting or emailing back and forth in real time. And, you know, he, he would describe these situations like, uh, you know, a grenade went off five feet from me and it didn't really bother me. Like, you know, his previous tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the one that was always amazing to me is he described, um, I put it in the book, but I don't remember off the top of my head, but it was, you know, a couple hundred pounds of explosives went off, you know, say like 50 meters away 
and basically said the guy to the left of me is at the, in you know was medevaced and on his way to San Antonio, and the guy to the right of me is out back throwing up, um, you know, and his ears are ringing, and you know he you know he's a mess, and he goes, and I'm fine, um, you know, so you know it's very anecdotal, but I can tell you there's one soldier who was really glad his mother was sending him boxes of fish oil uh, constantly. Um, and so he was eating fish on a daily basis as well as taking supplements. Um, and subsequently, you know, he said, should I give the guy that's out back throwing up, should I give him some fish oil? Absolutely. And his recovery was pretty quick within a day or two. Despite these cases of what I, what I consider to be evidence, empirical evidence anyway, and despite the safety of omega-3s, you, you've had some ups and downs in trying to get this implemented. Can you tell me about your meeting with the Vice Chief of Staff for the Army in 2011? Well, I had just published a, a study on suicide with a, a, a psychiatrist, sorry, um, a, a psychiatrist friend at the NIH. And um, we, we looked at documented suicide, 800 documented suicides in active duty military uh, with 800 well-matched controls. And we showed there was a 62% increased risk of suicide with low blood levels of omega-3, something that you could change for pennies a day. And, um, you know, we floated this, this data up to the Army Surgeon General. Um, it basically came back saying, oh, I don't believe it. Uh, so we made sure, you know, reworked the numbers, make sure we were correct, floated it up to them again. Uh, same thing happened. No, I don't believe it. It's, it's, you know, there's no way this could be true. And uh, um, so, all right, fine. We're going to, you know, we gave you the opportunity to get ahead of it and do something about it. So we're going to publish it in the scientific literature, which we did. Um, and then it got picked up by the USA Today and, you know, CNN. It ended up on the front page of USA Today that the military's got this potential, you know, has the research, has the potential to do something about it, and they're doing nothing. And um, I ran into General Corelli, who was the vice chief of staff of the Army, the number two general in the Army at the time, and, uh, and uh, he's come to my office and tell me what I need to know. So I, you know, a couple of days later, I'm in the Pentagon. It was a, a Wednesday evening, um, and I remember that for a specific reason. And I'm showing him the science and having the discussion. And he says, well, what's the downside? Like, there is no downside. And he goes, well, that's not what the Surgeon General tells me. I'm like, well, what does he tell you? And he starts to tell me about, you know, problems with bleeding or this. I don't even know what he said because I just started laughing. Um, I was a couple of weeks away from retirement. And, you know, here I am in front of the four-star general. And I just started laughing in his face. And he goes, what's so funny? And said, well, he's, he's, he's full of crap. <laughs> and, um, and he's, wait a minute, you're telling me general so-and-so, lieutenant general, three-star general, certain, you know, the surgeon general of the army, um, MD and PhD in nutrition from Harvard is full of it. And I'm like, yes, sir. That's what I'm saying. And I pulled a bottle of fish oil out of my pocket, had 30 capsules in it. I, and, um, 
And I put it in front of him and he goes, well, I already take fish oil. And I'm like, not like this, you don't. And so I said, I'll put you on the same dose that I'd put a private on if it came to me with a, right after a concussion. And uh, he said, okay, he'll do it. And you know, at the time it was five capsules three times a day. That's why I remember there was 30 capsules. It was just two days. And um, on Saturday morning, I, I get a, a, an email from his scientific advisor. The general's on his way to buy more fish oil. What should he get? And like, did he have any side effects? No. You know, did he notice a difference? And the answer was not only did he notice a difference, his staff noticed a difference. And most importantly, his wife noticed a difference. That was two days of fish oil, of somebody who was already taking fish oil at the doses that I was talking about. And he noticed a difference. Um, and he was a much calmer demeanor and more clear headed and thinking clear. Um, you would have thought that that would have been the, the start of a great you know, thing. But you know, when he retired, I called him and, and asked him what happened. And he said, exactly what you told me not to let happen. Um, the, the medical corps, the doctors, the, you know, the scientists all threw roadblocks in the way. Um, they'd rather do nothing than to try something. They said there, there's no scientific evidence that it would work. And mm -hmm. they wouldn't, they'd rather do nothing than try something. You told him that he hasn't taken fish oils like the ones that you gave him. Not all fish oils are created equal that are available to us. What are some of the things people need to look for with fish oils? Well, if it's cheap fish oil, you know, inexpensive fish oil, it's probably cheap fish oil. So you get what you pay for. That's, that's kind of the easiest uh, hurdle to overcome. Um, but there's a few things that you need to learn uh, how to read the label. Um, it might say, for example, uh, that one serving or one capsule is, and I'm talking about capsules, I'm not going to talk about liquids right now, um, that it, that's a thousand milligram capsule or a thousand milligrams of fish oil. That's really not important. What you have to do is you have to be able to look at the label and you have to look at how much, how many milligrams of EPA and how many milligrams of DHA there are in the, on the label supposedly in the capsule, and you have to add them together. They might have total omega-3s. There's a couple other omega-3s in there, but it's really about EPA and DHA. Um, and so that's what you have to look at first. Another thing that you want to consider is the form that it's in. Most fish oils on the market are in what's called an ethyl ester form. They break apart the, the um, fish oil. It's a triglyceride. You squeeze a fish, you get a triglyceride. It, it's kind of like the shape, of, think of the shape of an E, the letter E. And you got the glycerin backbone and three branches off of that. They break the glycerin backbone so that you've got these three free-floating fatty acids, but that's not stable. So you have to combine it with something and they combine it with an alcohol molecule. That's an ethyl ester. It's no longer an oil. And that way you can clean it and you know get the heavy metals and all the you know bad stuff that might be in there you clean it and then you can just bottle it and that's a cheap way of doing it it takes a lot more technology a lot more expensive to be able to put it back into a reconstituted triglyceride form 
and that's the best forms and that's the best brands uh, and products out there that are in that reconstitute in a triglyceride form. That's what you get when you eat, you know, if you eat fish, that's what you're consuming is triglyceride form. So, um, and I would say, you know, pay a little extra money, get the constant, most concentrated product out there that you can get in triglyceride form. It's going to cost more, but you know, we're, technology today that 3000 milligrams i talk about you can get that in three capsules um whereas you know it used to be five capsules or even six capsules or even 12 capsules for a single dose we can get that now down to three capsules for a dose hmm. i wish everyone knew about this and when my daughter was born, she suffered a traumatic brain injury and had to be resuscitated. I'm wondering for infants, how do you get the omega-3s in them or do you to help with their, their brain recovery when they have suffered injuries? Well, you can. Um, and so if you're talking about, you know, through the stomach, which is the preferable way to, um, to uh, consume them, um, you know, one of the ideas is, can you give it to them IV? You know, or you're not, you know, if they're in the hospital setting, um, there is a a uh, an IV formulation based out of Europe. It's ex considered experimental here in the United States, um, and it's actually not even a very good form of fish oil and IV. Um, so I set out to, to get a more concentrated form working with a, a manufacturer in Europe and we patent it, I patented it, um, a more concentrated form, but, uh, unfortunately it hasn't made it to market, uh, yet and don't know if that will ever see the light of day. Um, but you can put liquid fish oil down a feeding tube, um, and even in, uh, in preemies or newborns, um, you know, and there's guidelines that you can use that 40 milligrams per kilogram, for example, would be a great place to start. And what about nursing mothers? Can they pass that on in their breast milk? Well, they do. And in fact, uh, pregnant mothers um, pass it on. Uh, so omega-3s are required to make a brain in the first place. In fact, the, the brain undergoes its greatest growth and development in the third trimester of pregnancy. And so a preemie who's born at 24 weeks, it's really important because that's their third trimester is now outside the womb. Um, but, you know, let's assume that it's a full-term pregnancy and omega-3s actually have been shown to help a mother go to full-term as opposed to uh, mothers that don't take fish oil. Um, so omega-3s are required by the human body to make the brain in the first place. The mother will give up her own stores of omega-3s to make that happen. You know, we talk about calcium, you know, and a baby, you know, the, the fetus is leaching the calcium from the mother's bones. And so that's a risk of osteoporosis. Same thing's happening with omega-3s. Mother's going to give up her own omega-3s from her own brain to help the baby develop a brain in utero. So now if the mother's not consuming enough omega-3s and now she's deficient in omega-3s, particularly after, after giving birth, that could be a potentially major cause of postpartum depression. 
we know that low omega-3 levels are very correlated with mental health issues and particularly depression. Um, and then the mother continues to give up her own stores of DHA and omega-3s through the breast milk. And so much so that 100% of all infant formula in the United States is supplemented with DHA. You cannot buy a, a, uh, a um, infant formula in the United States that does not have DHA in it. It's 100%. It's so important for the development of the brain. Being so important, do you recommend supplementation and even at a higher dose for pregnant women? I, I think it should be absolutely standard of care. I mean, we talk about, you know, prenatal vitamins. You know, you, you can't go to an obstetrician pre being pregnant. They're always going to write your prescription for prenatal vitamins. And it's principally around the concept of folate. And folate, um, you know, has to do with spina bifida. Well, it turns out by the time you know you're pregnant, that the spinal cord's already formed, so it actually doesn't do anything for spina bifida. So, um, you know, so the time to take prenatal vitamins is before you get pregnant, and that can make a you know a major difference. It's also why folates now in bread and pastas and and other things is to try to decrease that. Um, I think it should be malpractice to not be giving omega-3s to a pregnant woman, but that's just my opinion. That's a little radical, but, um, and maybe, but I, I think it really is malpractice. Do you recommend as high as the omega-3 protocol, the 9,000 milligrams or more of a, a maintenance dose? No, I think it should be a maintenance dose, two to 3,000 milligrams, not, not the higher doses. There's no reason for the higher doses. Um, and, um, you know, I also will always go back to, you know, the FDA tells us 3,000 is what's generally recognized as safe. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a huge disservice over the last decade or so by telling women not to eat fish because of the possibility of mercury poisoning. Well, I, you know, there are studies out there that show that the theoretical risk of, in the terms of IQ points, the theoretical risk of IQ points lost for eating fish and that may have some mercury in it is a half, 0 0.5 IQ points. The theoretical risk of loss potential of not eating, getting enough omega-3s in pregnancy is somewhere around six or seven IQ points. So by not eating fish, you're giving up six or seven IQ points of your offspring in order to avoid a potential half a IQ point. It makes no sense whatsoever. Fish is the primary source of omega-3s, uh, fish and, and algae. Are there specific types of fish that provide well, the colder deep water fish um, have more fat stores because remember fat is energy and so um, and it's not just fish I mean land animals have omega-3s as well um, so think about you know grass-fed beef for example is going to have higher amounts of omega-3s uh, assuming that they're not being fed soy and corn which are great sources of omega-6s um, and farmed salmon and tilapia and things like that. Tilapia, there's absolutely no redeeming value in tilapia. 
I mean, it's just something that I just tell people to completely avoid. You're in the great Pacific Northwest. Uh, you're in British Columbia, Vancouver Island. And you know what? That, you know, Pacific Northwest, you know, uh, fresh caught salmon. There's, that's probably my favorite source. Good sources of tuna and really all kinds of good wild caught seafood uh, have great value. But think about, let's pick on salmon for a minute, right? Why are some like Copper River salmon, why is Copper River salmon considered so much better than say Fraser River salmon or Columbia River salmon or whatever? It has to do with the distance and the elevation, um, the energy that the salmon are gonna have to expend to go from the ocean where they've been out feeding and fattening up for a couple of years to swim back upstream to their spawning areas. And so the further they have to go and the higher you know, elevation and work that they have to do, the more fat stores they're gonna have to uh, build up. And so those salmon are gonna have this, the fat stores and omega-3s are almost like an antifreeze. I mean, we're talking about deep cold water fish they got to keep warm. They can't, you know, how do you keep from freezing? And that's fat. And, uh, and particularly, you know, they, they, um, they eat algae and, and krill and so on. And then they basically store that as omega-3 fats for that insulation, for that energy store to be able to swim upstream later on in life. Where can vegans find a good source of omega-3? So um, vegans can find there are algae sources. So somebody once back in the 80s, I could tell you the longer story, but I won't at this point. Um, but, um, you know, a scientist basically asked, um, where do fish get their omega-3s? Because they don't come with omega-3s. They have to process it. They need essential fatty acids. And then they, you know, build up their stores of EPA and DHA along the way. And so where do they get their ALA to start this process? And they get it from algae. And so they set out and figured out what sources of algae have the best. And, and there's all kinds of different levels of algae uh, that may have more ALA, some will have more EPA, some will have more DHA. And they figured out how to grow this algae in like million gallon test tubes kind of thing. Um, and then they extract the oil out of it. So it's never been in fish, it's never even been in the ocean. We're talking, well, so basically they grow algae in a big tank and extract the oil out of it. So it's completely vegan, kosher, and halal. Um, and a number of companies out there, uh, as long as it says algae sourced omega 3, that's where it comes from. What dose would you recommend for postpartum for mothers? I will always go back to that 3,000 milligrams. What if they're um, now, suffering from postpartum depression? Well, generally, the, the best answer is if they can get a blood test and see what their omega-3 levels are, that's always the best answer. I was asked this question the other day at a, at a, a brain injury conference, um, and uh, my answer was, I don't even bother to do blood testing anymore because I already know everybody's deficient. Um, now, the better answer is spend a little money and get blood testing done because uh, then you've got more objective data. But uh, anybody that comes to me with 
issues of anxiety, mental health issues, traumatic brain injury issues, whatever, I always want to do a little bit of a loading dose uh, to start with. And so it doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, a teenager with ADHD, um, somebody with a traumatic brain injury, or somebody that's, you know, say postpartum depression, I'll start them on 9,000 milligrams for at least a week, um, just to get a hold of that, those levels, get it started. It's a loading dose, but it's not something I would uh, tell anybody to be on long term. I'm glad you brought up the ADHD because you do talk about in your book about omega-3s for mental health in general, even success in, or empirical success anyway, in autism. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, you know, autism's complex, obviously. And so what, what are omega-3s going to do for autism? They're not going to cure autism. It's not going to... You know, you think one of the the hallmarks of autism is, the, you know, the outbursts, and so you know, I've had a few cases where mothers have come back to me and said they put their child on um, their autistic child on omega threes, and it calms them down. They're just much more calmer, easier to deal with. It's not reversing the autism; it's just calming their brain down. Um, and so that can make a big difference in quality of life for everybody, you know, not just the kid, but also the family and the caretakers. Let's shift gears for a bit and talk about <clears throat> the one big concussive blow versus many sub concussive strikes and what is known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Well, chronic encephalopathy, uh, traumatic encephalopathy, CTE for short, um, in my, you know, we don't, we don't know what we don't know, uh, just like Alzheimer's and, and other things. I absolutely believe that, you know, CTE, and I don't think anybody's really going to argue with this, that CTE, as well as Alzheimer's, is really, you know, like uh, the result of chronic inflammation. Um, you have, you know, whether it's one big blow or multiple sub-concussive blows, you've got inflammation. And... You know, so you need you need good blood flow to the brain because you need to get oxygen and nutrients to your brain cells, and then but you also need blood flow to be able to take out the trash, if you will, because cellular metabolism there's always that constant influx of good things and taking out the trash of the bad things, and so if if you know if the trash um, collectors go on strike. Uh, that trash is going to start to accumulate. And that's basically what inflammation um, does. And without, the, you know, with a not an insufficient amount of omega-3s, it's like the trash collectors going on strike because you don't have enough of them to get around uh, to collect everything and get them out. And so um, over time, that's going to accumulate. And that's what CTE is, is basically that trash is just accumulating. And once it gets to a certain point, starts to kill off some brain cells and um, and then you start to have the symptoms of almost like an acute concussion but very chronically right you've got the um, you know it's pretty well documented the the you know the chronic headaches the inability to think clearly the brain fog um, the irritability the emotional outbursts the anger these are all because of that chronic inflammation that doesn't get resolved so 
whether it's from a big blow or whether it's from multiple sub-concussive blows like you would get from heading a soccer ball or you know bouncing off the boards in ice hockey or of course uh, banging heads in football. CTE was discovered by Dr. Bennett Amalu who was portrayed by Will Smith in the movie Concussion uh, in which Julian Bales was portrayed as well. How has the the media uh, coverage, you know, the movie and, and newspapers and journals of CTE and concussions and traumatic brain injuries, how has that changed anything in the general public or has it? Not as much as I would have thought it would. Um, I think it's helped raise awareness, but I think really the, the awareness piece has really come from the NFL. Um, you know, you can't watch a football game on TV now, you know, whether it's the CFL or the NFL or now the XFL and, you know, and college football, um, where the announcers aren't talking about it. The rules have changed, and I think that's a really good thing. Uh, you know, the, the whole um, uh, targeting calls that are, are being done when they eject the players uh, out of the game and, you know, at the professional level, not just eject them, but then fine them as well. Um, to try and get the head out of the game. Um, so I think that that awareness, when you are dealing with it at the professional level, it's going to filter down into the college level and the high school level and the youth level. And whether you're talking, um, you know, FIFA, you know, soccer, football, you know, filtering down into U.S. soccer and, and youth soccer, are you talking NHL and, um, you know, hockey or, you know, NFL, CFL down to the youth football leagues? I think it's, that's where the awareness, in my opinion, is coming. The movie didn't make as much of an impact as I would have thought it would. Now, I don't know how accurate the movie was in actually portraying the real story, but it seemed that the NFL was quite reluctant to believe that any sort of traumatic brain injuries were occurring because of the game or, maybe they knew when they were covering it up. It's probably a little bit like big tobacco, right? Does mm-hmm. um, you know, the NFL is a, you know, multi-billion dollar business. And if you were responsible for a multi-billion dollar business, would you admit liability? No, <laughs> it's going to kill your own business. And so they're not going to admit liability. They'd be crazy if they ever did. Um, and, you know, so it's just not really going to happen because um, they got to protect their business. And I'm not saying that's right, <laughs> you know, and obviously I don't think it is right. But um, are they using yeah. the, the Omega-3 protocol? Is that being used uh, by any uh, Well, if we pick on the NFL for a second, um, it's we think of the NFL as one organization. In fact, it's a um, it's 32 clubs in an organization. So there's the NFL executive offices, there's the NFL Players Association, and then there's 32 teams. And each one of those 34 entities basically um, can make their own decisions. So, um, so I'm aware of a couple of teams that are using omega-3s on a daily basis with their players. Uh, other teams make it available. Um, players are certainly welcome to, to uh, do it on their own, but uh, I'm aware of a couple of teams that actually make it available or even require their players to take it. Um, NCAA level is a whole different story. About 
three years ago, they came out and said, uh, they have three levels. There's banned substances, kind of obvious. And then there's permissible substances, kind of started with the Gatorade, right? Be able to provide electrolytes. And then beyond that, they recently, about three years ago, made, you know, that protein uh, supplements were available for, um, for their athletes, university athletes. And then uh, about the same time, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they put fish oil and omega-3s on the not permissible list, which means athletes are allowed to purchase on their own and take responsibility on their own. If it's adulterated and they come up positive for a banned substance, the university is like, I'm sorry, you're on your own. Um, whereas the, the permissible list the university's allowed to purchase, provide it, and takes responsibility for it. Um, with some lobbying and, you know, and I got involved with it uh, quite extensively as well. Um, last January, so about 13, 14 months ago, uh, the NCAA came out and put omega-3s uh, omega on the permissible list. So now they, universities can purchase it and provide it at the training tables and to their athletes. That's a huge win. And their justification was it's important for developing, not just for calories, a source of calories, you know, fat like protein and carbohydrates, but that omega-3s are important for brain development and brain health. And for them to recognize that and acknowledge that, that was huge. Great work on that. I know we're up against the clock, so I wanted to cover a few more topics quickly. You spoke earlier briefly about not all concussions result in loss of consciousness, and I know that's a common misconception that you have to lose consciousness to suffer a concussion, but you don't. And I want to make sure that that's something that listeners are aware of, that these traumatic brain injuries or concussive blows, some people might not even realize that they have suffered a severe injury. It may just be an injury that they overlook and and uh, move on with it and then don't recognize the, the series of symptoms that occur as a result of that. In your book, you say that CT scans are not effective in diagnosing concussion and MRIs somewhat. Is that correct? Typically, your usual, your typical MRI uh, is not going to show anything unless um, it's a would be classified as a moderate or severe TBI. And even that is not going to really, I mean, other than showing let me, let me back up. Um, CT scans are a surgical tool, a surgical decision, right? So the only reason to do a CT scan, say, in the emergency room setting is to see if there's bleed, active bleeding going on, like a subdural bleed. That would require emergency surgery. It's not going to show anything in a concussion. It's only really there to be able to see if there's a bleed. Uh, as far as what's called diffuse um, axonal injury, that shearing, that tearing of, of axons and connections in the brain, um, an MRI won't even show that, uh, your typical MRI won't even show that until maybe uh, about a week later, uh, there may be telltale signs that would show it. So it's it's really not a an effective tool. But actually, um, an EEG-based technology and some other technologies that have that will start to and should replace CAT scans in the emergency room to detect whether or not 
is a bleed to save us from um, too much radiation. I mean, a CAT scan is multiple x-rays. It's a, a lot of radiation, especially in kids. And so if we can save our kids from getting excessive uh, radiation exposure by measuring the brain waves um, in real time, uh, that's where the technology is available and, and, you know, getting out there today. Your book, in your book, When Brains Collide, you provide a number of resources to family members of uh, concussion sufferers, ways that they can get omega-3 protocol implemented actually in the hospital. Can you talk briefly about comas and the current state of care in our North American medical system and also uh, a brief comparison to what is happening in, in Europe? Uh, well, I can't really speak as far as what's happening in Europe. I don't really know. Um, but I literally just got back a, two days ago from uh, the North American Brain Injury Association annual meeting. Not enough uh, awareness is out there as far as uh, you know your typical emergency room situation, even your neurosurgeons uh, and neurologists. They're not looking at omega-3s. Um, so we've got a lot of work still to do. Um, I, you know, the Society for Critical Care Medicine, as an example, for years, probably at least 10 years, some of those top recommendations are for um, acute trauma and head injury in particular, that immune enhancing formulations for feeding should be done and started soon. A lot of times you go in the hospital, they don't, you know, and you're in a coma or whatever, they don't feed you for, you know, potentially, um, you, know, a, you know, days or even a week. So starting nutrition early has been shown to decrease um, negative outcomes. And by using immune enhancing formulations has been shown to, to improve outcomes. And they define immune enhancing as like with branch chain amino acids, omega-3s, vitamins, and minerals. And unfortunately, even though the Society of Critical Care Medicine says this should be, this, this is the standard and this is our grade A top level recommendations, it's still not done, not even, I, I won't even say universally, it's still not done hardly at all, unfortunately, because those formulations cost more money and hospitals are always looking at how to save money. In the few minutes that we have left, can you briefly talk about CBD oil and what is exciting about its use with brain health? So CBD oil is a cannabidiol. Um, you know, it comes from the cannabis plant. It's one of the major cannabinoids of the cannabis plant. THC is the one that you know people sort of know a little bit better. Um, and THC has got some great medicinal values, but not like CBDs. THC has a lot of potential adverse outcomes, adverse problems. CBD is really, it's the non-psychoactive. It's not going to get you high uh, like THC part of the cannabis plant. Cannabis is sort of separated into marijuana side of things and industrial hemp. The, the U.S. government, the federal government defines hemp as having 0.3% THC or less. So basically trace amounts or no THC in it. And so you're really getting the, the medicinal plant without the high. Um, 
and so CBD's got some great thing. It interacts with serotonin receptors, with dopamine receptors, with opioid receptors. Uh, and so there's getting growing evidence that it, it's useful for helping with addiction medicine, you know, getting people off of opioids and heroin and cocaine and other hard drugs. You can actually use hemp-derived CBD oil or broad-spectrum hemp oil is really a more accurate term um, to, for addiction medicine. But when it comes to brain health, not only we, you know, you talk about opioid, dopamine, serotonin receptors, but one of the biggest ways it interacts is it blocks an enzyme that breaks down our own cannabinoids. So our brain makes our own happy molecules. We used to call them endorphins. There are some endorphins, but um, and when you get a runner's high, it's actually our endogenous cannabinoids. And one in particular is called anandamide which in Sanskrit basically means bliss molecule. And anandamide interacts with receptors in our brain, which we now call cannabinoid receptors. And, but they're short, very short half-life and made on demand. And it's really about keeping us fine-tuned. It's like the, the equalizer on your stereo. It, it's just that fine-tuning to keep us happy and healthy. It, it helps control how we think, how we feel, how we react. And what CBD does is it blocks, it helps block or decrease the uh, enzyme that breaks down anandamide. So it keeps anandamide around longer. Um, so it literally does keep us happier, but it also keep, it has a major, major positive effect on anxiety. So I use CBD oil or hemp derived CBD oil um, for patients, not just TBI patients, but anybody with anxiety. It's been a tremendous thing. And also, interestingly enough, anandamide gets broken down into arachidonic acid. And it's made from arachidonic acid, which kind of is like, well, that's kind of interesting. I mean, anandamide is a great thing, but it gets broken down into arachidonic acid, which then feeds, you know, of course, that's the inflammation side of things. What about the omega-3 side of things. Well, yes, there is that. Uh, DHA gets made into and then broken down uh, back into DHA, something that's now been called synaptamide. Um, so it's the DHA version of anandamide. And synaptamide's not doesn't interact with the cannabinoid receptors as much as it helps actually grow new neurons, new synapses, new connections for our brain. So it's really involved in that neuroplasticity, our ability to, our brains to adapt after an injury to kind of, I always say it's like Waze or, uh, you know, Google Maps, you know, there's an accident on the highway up ahead. And so it re, or construction on the highway up ahead, and it reroutes the traffic around it. Well, that's what the brain does after an injury. And synaptomide is a major, major, major player in that. And it's made from DHA and broken down in DHA. CBD, so synaptomide and anandamide share those same enzymes. Again, we're back to that balance between omega-6 and omega-3, and they share those same enzymes. And CBD inhibits that breakdown of not just anandamide, but also synaptamide. So it keeps us happier and helps make more brain cells. Um, so CBD is really um, 
a powerful tool in the arsenal. And you put those two together, omega-3s and CBD, I think that's, to me, that's the, my biggest area of interest in, uh, right now and trying to understand and explore. And uh, I think that's going to be a huge bump in, um, in helping people after, uh, after concussions. Dr. Lewis, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on to the podcast. I know you have to go in a few minutes. Can you please uh, share with us where listeners can learn more about you and your work? Well, you know, you, you mentioned my book, When Brains Collide, a couple of times. Um, you know, uh, listeners can go on to Amazon and, you know, it's going to show up. You put in When Brains Collide, it's going to be right there in Kindle or paperback version. Um, lots of great information there. A lot more depth. I go in and actually spell out how to do the protocols I talk about with omega-3s and introduce the concept of CBD. I guess my next book will have to be on CBD or that combination. Um, and then I said, when I retired from the military, I started a small nonprofit, lots of information out there. Uh, brainhealtheducation.org, brainhealtheducation.org uh, for that. Throw out a couple more if, uh, you know, um, if you want more information on CBD, one good place to start is plus, P-L-U-S, plus cbdoil.com. Is a good place to start, and there's other websites out there that have good information. Um, what else can I say? And you know, I do see patients and do consultations around the world. And you can go, you know, if you really want to get a hold of me for an individual consultation, um, you can go to braincare.center, not .com, but braincare.center uh, is my practice where you can reach me for that level of information. I want to thank you personally because a couple of years ago, someone close to me suffered a traumatic brain injury. I reached out to you and you were so gracious with your time and knowledge. You shared over numerous correspondences, valuable information that I could pass on. And I, I want to thank you for doing that for me. And I know you've done it countless times for people around the world. You're doing an incredible service. And I hope that your work and your research gets out to a, a huge audience because this has the power to change everybody's life. So thank you I so much. I really for, believe that as well. So thank you for coming on to the show. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I hope you have been impacted safely by this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Dr. Michael Lewis. Please see the links in the show notes to find out more about Dr. Lewis's critical research and work. If you are interested in learning more about how nutrition can help you and your loved ones, consider joining Pacific Rim College's world-renowned Diploma of Holistic Nutrition or our shorter Holistic Nutrition Certificate program. Or for less lengthy studies in nutrition, you can enroll in our nutrition workshops at pacificrimcollege.com or visit pacificrimcollege.online to see our growing lineup of online nutrition courses. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, commit to a regimen of omega-3 fatty acids as if your life depended on it. <laughs>